This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Republican lawmakers are reintroducing two bills that would ban transgender girls and women from participating in women's sports. Student athletes would be required to play on a team that corresponds to a person's sex assigned at birth or participate on a co-ed team. One bill is aimed at students in K-12 public and private schools, while the other would affect the UW system and technical colleges. The Wisconsin Examiner reports that the state assembly passed similar bills in 2021, but they failed to advance in the Senate. The reintroduction comes amid a wave of transgender legislation across the country. 22 states have passed laws banning banning transgender students from participating in sports consistent with their gender identity. Several groups have opposed the measures, including A Better Wisconsin Together, a nonprofit organization, and the state's LGBTQ caucus. If passed by both the Assembly and the Senate, it would most certainly be vetoed by Governor Tony Evers. The Wisconsin Department of Health Services has awarded grants to 90 organizations across the state that provide home and community-based services to Medicaid recipients. A total of $12.5 million will go towards expanding transportation access, reforming long-term services, and more. Funding comes from the American Rescue Plan Act and will also help support workers who provide care for disabled people and older adults. Medicaid Director Jamie Kuhn says the projects will have, quote, an immediate and sustainable impact. Wisconsin's Department of Safety and Professional Services are now offering a Spanish option for all trade exams. 40 licenses will now be available in Spanish for plumbing, inspecting, contracting, and other trades. Balthazar Deanda Santana, executive director of the Latino Academy for Workforce Development, believes this is the first step in helping Latin Americans get licensed and have more opportunities. The U.S. Census identifies the state's Hispanic community as Wisconsin's biggest minority group. Deanda also says more needs to be done. He told the Capital Times, quote, It's important for us to keep having the conversation about immigration reform because that is what really creates obstacles for many Latinos. The National Labor Relations Board has ruled that financial services company TrueStage violated federal labor law at least twice when dealing with the union representing its workers. The company, formerly known as CUNA Mutual Group, unlawfully withheld information it was required to provide to Local 39 of the Office of Professional Employees International Union, the NLRB found in a report released Wednesday. The board ordered TrueStage to release the information it withheld from the union immediately. The union has filed at least nine more unfair labor practices charges against TrueStage that remain under review. They include bad faith bargaining, retaliation against union members, illegal surveillance, and termination of the union chief stewards, according to a union press release. Union members went on strike in May, but returned to the job in early June when they reached a tentative agreement on some key contract provisions. Further negotiations are ongoing. A showcase of the dairy industry that has called Madison home for over half a century has agreed to a contract that will keep it here for the foreseeable future, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi announced today. 
the World Dairy Expo signed a contract with the county to remain in Madison for the next five years and includes an option for an additional three years. The World Dairy Expo draws an average of almost 60,000 visitors annually from across North America and around the world. Parisi's office estimated the annual economic impact of the expo exceeds $31 million. This year's expo will be held October 1st through October 6th at the Alliant Energy Center. Madison is ready to move forward with a $300 million remake of the Triangle, nearly tripling the amount of low-income housing at the site. The 10 and a half acres between West Washington Avenue and South Park Street is owned by the city's Community Development Authority, or CDA. They'll consider a plan to redevelop the site to add over 1,200 housing units over five phases. Phase one would bring just over 160 units and be completed by 2026. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that residents will be allowed to remain on site during construction and will be offered a unit in the new development. Additionally, Asian Midway Foods will be maintained, but would likely move to a new grocery store space. The CDA believes adding units will allow them to serve people across all income levels. And Madison enjoyed over an inch and a half of rain on Wednesday, but drought conditions persist across the city and the rest of southern Wisconsin. The U.S. Drought Monitor shows all of Dane, Sauk, Iowa, and Richland counties under a state of extreme drought, WKOW-TV reports. An area of severe drought extends across much of Wisconsin, south of a line from La Crosse to Appleton. And now on to today's top stories. After a preliminary update to dog ordinances in Madison Parks in 2019, the city government has voted to officially allow on-leash dogs in the majority of parks. This move comes with both widespread support and criticism. WORT reporter Faye Parks has the story. The Madison Board of Park Commissioners voted unanimously last night to allow on-leash dogs in the majority of parks across the city. This change in policy is in response to the results of a pilot program instituted in 2019. Four years ago, they voted to allow dogs in most parks, with the exception of about 30 in the city that remain dog-free. Now, these remaining 30 parks will lose the dog-free designation in a bid to simplify the rules. According to Lisa Leishinger, the Parks Division Superintendent, 2019's pilot program changed dog policies based on request. These constant changes made enforcement almost unmanageable. Well, that became very much a volley back and forth. We declare a park dog-free just the next year to be asked to make it a dog-friendly park. And so that would take a significant amount of resources, and it was never, that change was never generally broadly supported by the, the surrounding community. Leishinger says that the shifting policies over the last few years were the result of a shift in Madison's culture and population. In the 1970s, dogs were banned from all city parks, but this ban is not sustainable in the 21st century. Madison dog owners are largely in support of these changes, but many citizens have expressed passionate opposition. They argue that existing issues with cleanup and off-leash dogs outside of designated areas will only worsen. However, C.J. Ryan, Assistant Superintendent of the Parks Division, 
says that more consistent policy across the board will actually make the enforcement of dog owner etiquette simpler. She encourages people to report any concerns to the rangers. You know, squeaky wheels get attention, Mm -hmm. right? So if a ranger doesn't know that there's an issue, they don't know. Um, Whenever they get a call about a dog off leash um, in a in a park or in a conservation park where there shouldn't be a dog. If there isn't something more urgent, they will go and try to see if the person is there. Sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. Ryan says that the city park rangers are some of the most detailed record keepers in local government. This means that even if they do not report to the scene of a complaint in time, rangers can easily track problem areas and organize their patrols around the data. There are still some public spaces that remain dog free, such as conservation parks, athletic fields, beaches, shelters, playgrounds, golf courses during golf season, splash parks, and culturally significant resources such as burial mounds. City park officials are encouraging Madisonians to rely on the rangers and participate in this system. With this change in policy, the hope is that dog owners and park goers can share Madison's green space peacefully. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. In 2019, Wisconsin lawmakers proposed the Equality Agenda, a package of bills working to protect and enhance the rights of LGBTQ plus people. In the package was a bill that would ban the use of a defense that works to mitigate the sentences of those who commit acts of violence against LGBTQ people. While the defense is not codified, lawmakers are still hoping to ban it in hopes of preventing its use in the future. WORT reporter Elizabeth Walsh has more. Democratic state lawmakers are looking to join 16 states and D.C. that have completely banned the use of the gay and trans panic defense in criminal law. The gay and trans panic defense was introduced in U.S. courts in the 1960s. When used, the defense seeks a shortened sentence for defendant, blaming the victim's sexual orientation or gender identity as the cause of violence or murder. Using the defense, one can argue that by being gay or trans, the victim caused a nervous breakdown in the defendant that led to violence. This defense has only been brought up in Wisconsin courts two times, and most recently in the 90s, and it was not successful. In 1997, Kelly J. Bodo shot and killed Robin Elsinger after Elsinger allegedly made, quote, homosexual advances, end quote, towards Bodo. A year later, Bodo was tried and convicted of first-degree murder. In 2001, in post-conviction, Bordeaux appealed to the court, arguing his trial did not sufficiently investigate his psychological state at the time of the murder. He believed a more thorough investigation would lead to a reduced sentence. Bordeaux claims that he was sexually assaulted by Elsinger months prior and shot him because there was a risk of another sexual assault. The court appeal reads, quote, Bordeaux suggests that had the council sought a psychological evaluation, other potential defenses, most notably homosexual panic or post-traumatic stress, would have been apparent, end quote. He was reevaluated and was found to be suffering from PTSD at the time of the shooting, but not of gay panic. The courts did not find this to be sufficient evidence and denied his appeal for a retrial. Since then, the defense has not been used in Wisconsin courts. Justin Nicholson Getz is a Madison-based criminal defense attorney. She says it's not being used anymore because it's not a recognized defense in Wisconsin. So far as I am aware, we have never codified any such defense. Further, I would suggest to you that the existing statutes under Wisconsin law make it pretty clear that no such defense would be valid or permitted. The defense is not in line with Wisconsin self-defense laws. 
State statutes say that self-defense can only be used in certain situations, and those statutes clearly define every one of those situations. Gay and trans panic is not included on that list. What I'm envisioning is that the violent reaction occurs in the immediate aftermath of the expression of sexual or romantic interest. Assuming that that expression of sexual or romantic interest didn't involve physical contact, you don't get to become violent with someone because they say something you don't like. Getz believes that if the defense is to ever be brought up in court, it needs to be paired with a codified affirmative defense. It cannot stand alone. There needs to be a pre-existing threat of violence to build a self-defense case. I don't think that being hit on without your permission in any way gives any person a claim under Wisconsin law to become physically violent. So I don't know why you would have a special exception if you're being hit on by the sex that you're not attracted to. Like, that's silly. Legislation to ban the defense has been introduced in 14 states, including Wisconsin, but has not been passed yet. A bill was first introduced in Wisconsin in 2019 as part of the Equality Agenda, a package of six bills looking to protect the rights of LGBTQ people. None of the bills passed in 2019. They were reintroduced in 2021 and again did not pass. Getz says that legislators are looking to ban the defense before it can be used against LGBTQ folks. The concern there is obviously there are all of these anti-LGBT bills that are being introduced across the country. And I think the concern is they want to ban this before the other side could argue for the addition of some type of codified like defense. While they have historically faced pushback, state lawmakers will continue to reintroduce the equality agenda in future legislative sessions. While Getz does not believe it is currently the most pressing issue the LGBTQ community is facing, she does think it is important to ban the defense so no more harm can be done in the future. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Elizabeth Walsh. Last month, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of a Christian web designer from Colorado, saying that she could refuse to work with a same-sex couple on the basis of religious liberty. To learn more about this ruling, a public affair host, Carousel Baird, spoke with Elizabeth Brenner Platt, Director of Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia Law School, and Caroline Mala Corbin, Law Professor at the University of Miami Law School. Carolyn, can you kick us off a little bit? What did the court decide? Um, The court basically held that Colorado's anti-discrimination law, that is a law that banned, that a law that said, if you're a place of public accommodation, that is, if you are a store that is open to the public, you may not discriminate against potential customers based on their race, sex, or sexual orientation. The court held that that law violated a website designer's free speech rights because that law would have forced her to make a wedding website for a same-sex couple and in doing so would force her to state a message that was contrary to her deeply held religious beliefs and the free speech clause protects against the government compelling you to say something that you don't want to say. So a state anti-discrimination law violated the free speech speech clause because it forced this woman to speak contrary to her beliefs. How does this case differ from so many other cases about 
public accommodation. Liz, do you want to take that one? Sure. So she was seeking an exemption from a statutory provision. And, you know, one thing I, I just want to step back at as sort of a framing issue is yeah. that I think we often see these cases framed as sort of conflicts of rights. And even though this is a free speech case, we often see it as framed as kind of a matter of religious liberty versus civil rights or anti-discrimination. And one thing I always like to do when I'm talking about these in similar cases is note that I think it's actually frequently much more complicated than that, in that I think in, in addition to this case being an attack on anti-discrimination and civil rights law, it's actually really bad for religious liberty in the first instance. And it's bad for the expression of religion in the public sphere and religious pluralism. Because, you know, if folks are chilled from their ability, if they feel like they can't go access uh, services in the public sphere because of other expressive behaviors like wearing a hijab or wearing a yarmulke or who they are or the decisions they make based on their own conscience, then that's actually chilling a good deal mm -hmm. of speech and expression and, and frankly, religious faith. So, I mean, I take your point that there is certainly, to some extent, a, this kind of conflict in this uh, of rights, and it can be seen as a conflict of rights, but I think it can also be seen as um, an inability to see that ideally our, you know, equal protection clause and our free speech clause and our uh, free exercise clause should really all work in harmony to protect everybody's ability to exist in the public sphere um, in a pluralistic democratic society. Sort of taking what you're talking about, can we then break down, I mean, there's so many pieces to this case to break down. First of all, this case wasn't decided on the religious protection clauses within the First Amendment. It was decided on free speech clauses of the First Amendment. D does that matter? Could did this case translate that your free speech protection then could expand to any opinion that you have, regardless of whether it's based on religion or not? Absolutely. Yeah, there's no there's no limitation for it to be based on uh, religion. But I, I do think, again, that's sort of like there's also no way to separate it. Right. This is a, a religiously infused case from the very start. And the Supreme Court just decided it didn't want to touch the religion claims that were initially brought. Uh, and it, it wanted to decide it on the free speech clause. And Caroline, I saw you sort of nodding along. I, I would love to get your take on sort of the role that religion plays in this decision, maybe not affirmatively in what's written by the Supreme Court, but certainly is subtext that this feels like maybe the Supreme Court wouldn't have taken up this case if it wasn't about protecting the religious freedoms of traditional Christian Americans. It is certainly one in a string of cases where you have conservative white Christians challenging some law, often an anti-discrimination anti law, and so it definitely fits in with that mold. So there was the Masterpiece Cake Shop where you had a bakery who didn't want to bake cakes for same-sex couples, and they prevailed on religion grounds. You had a foster care agency that did not want to place children with same-sex families. 
and that violated Philadelphia's norms and they won. You had a conservative Christian who wanted to pray in the middle of a football field in violation, seemingly in violation of separation in church and state. And he won. Right. Um, and you have religious organizations challenging emergency health care regulations and based on questionable science, they won. So I do think in, in, in terms of what the subtext is, the court seems especially sympathetic to claims brought by conservative white Christians challenging attempts to regulate in the public interest. At the same time, as Liz pointed out, the actual holding of the case is not based on religion and therefore it is not limited to people who do not want to comply with anti-discrimination law because of their religious beliefs. It can be anybody who doesn't, <clears throat> who claims they have, you know, their conscience forbids them from serving same-sex couples. It doesn't have to be motivated by religion. It could be motivated by anything. They have the right not to be forced to express a message contrary to their views, whatever those views are. And it's also not limited to, you know, discrimination against LGBT community. It could be anyone who has strong feelings about anybody else. And if they can make the claim, they won't always be able to, but if they can make the claim that an anti-discrimination law forces them to express a message contrary to what they believe, then under this decision, they may be entitled to an exemption from the anti-discrimination law. That was a public affair host, Carousel Bear, speaking with Elizabeth Renner-Platt and Caroline Mala Corbin. That was just a portion of their full conversation, which can be found online at wortfm.org. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. This week on the Out of the Box podcast, host D-Star sat down with Holy God's clothing owner, Kingston Robertson. He shares his life growing up in Chicago, the trials and tribulations of gang culture, what led him to prison, and the turning point that inspired him to follow his dreams and start his own clothing brand. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with... Kingston Robertson with Holy God's Clothing Line. So for the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm an entrepreneur. I was born and raised in Chicago. I was blessed to be with a family that brought me down here to Madison, Wisconsin to change my narrative and give me more guidance and direction. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences that led you to start this clothing line, Holy God's? Well, you know, I always... I know it's a lot. We spoke... <laughs> We spoke off camp, you know, we kind of went through it. We've been going through it for a while. It's definitely a lot, but let's start from who raised you. My grandma played a big, big part in raising me. You know, my mother as well, you know, my mother was young. So like my grandma kind of took my mother under her wing 
made sure she finished, you know, went to nursing school and did everything that she wanted to do. But at the same time, I was like very hands on with my grandma. And my grandma is like my chief, somebody that I really looked up to strongly, you know, any vulnerable moment, she was that. My uncle played a great part too. Shout out to my uncle Demond always. He helped mold me and guide me into wanting to do the right thing. Computer technology, that's how I'm in that now. For the most part, you know, my grandma, my mom, and my uncle raised me. But what were some of the trials and tribulations that you had coming up in Chicago, Illinois? Well, I'm originally from Inglewood. You know, shout out to 69th and Justine, 70th and Justine, Red Tape, all them guys. I was originally born in Chicago. You know, like I say, we go through the struggles of like, if you are in a gang, if you're not in a gang, you're in a gang. Don't matter. It don't matter. You know what I'm saying? Like when you're on the block and you know it's a shootout, they ain't like, oh, miss him. You know, he he good. Don't don't hit him. No. We're gonna take whatever that's over there and make y'all feel it. So it's just like you either get in tune or you be left out and, and not knowing what's going on. Because if you're not part of the structure, how would you know what's happening within the structure? Right, and what to look out for. At the end of the day, we all gotta live over here. You gotta be prepared for what, what might come or stay in the house. And you know what kid gonna stay in the house. Right. <laughs> We playing football or whatever we doing and, you know. This show centered around reentry. So we give people like yourself the platform to tell your story so it might inspire others. Some of the trials and tribulations that you went through going to prison, some of the lessons that you learned, what are you doing now to impact the community? Long story short, you know, a lot of the ways that I grew up, I took and utilized in the wrong way and I end up going to prison behind it. You know, I thought Madison was sweet, you know what I'm saying, compared to Chicago because it really wasn't no structure. You know, it, it, like I told you, I don't regret the things that I went through or the lessons that was learned. I just felt that I could have did a lot greater while learning them. Or who knows when they're actually learning something until they had to learn it. Right. You know, so prison kind of like helped me develop. Like I'm in the feds, so it's like as a teenager, I already didn't have no respect. I didn't even have morals or goals at that point. I just knew shoes, cars, females. Like, I, just, I felt like a rapper, you know what I'm saying? Like, the lower verge, you know, I'm, I'm out there, you know, people that's 26, 32, they think I'm, they age and they attracted to me. So I'm thinking I'm just on top of the world. I think I'm an adult. Little do I know I'm still not there yet. And going to prison, like, kind of made it like, like, you have to have respect. Respect is mandatory. Your life every day is based off respect. Like if you ain't giving it, it you might be the last time you not give it. Or you know, or you know, just like you you learn how to be a man in, in places that's that like that because it's forced. Like if you didn't have a father figure, you could still come out of those situations with all those things. Like I used to like I was so in love with my grandma, and I know it's a small fact. You know, women pose the way they watch on the right, and we pose the way it on the left. And uh, you know, I had it on the right because I'm like, shoot, I was mimicking everything that my grandma do because that was what I knew. So when I got into them places, I was learning a lot of different things that, you know, as men, we supposed to know. It helped me because, like, I think I read, like, over, giving you the low number, like, over 232 books within that time frame. I actually did seven years and six months altogether. And Rich Dad, Poor Dad is my favorite book. I didn't bought that book a lot of times for people that didn't read it yet. I don't know why. I even tried to pay some of the younger kids to read it and give me a book report just to install that in them because how that book changed my way of living and the way that I thought about things, even with the real estate. Like it made me understand the way I was once living, I was learning, but I just took the wrong direction in doing so. Absolutely. Yeah, man, it seems like you really went through the ringer. 
it's deeper than that. It's like since since my childhood, you like like not understanding what really was going on. Like you know, my mom was young. You know, my mom was like 15 when she got pregnant. My daddy was like 22, 23. My mom ain't really ready for you know what's about to come. You know, she's still young. You know, when you going through that and you know your mom and stuff like that is like she's not experienced to be a mother. So everything that she went through, I went through it with her. But on top of that, my birthday, March 31st, and hers, April 3rd. So at times, we weren't seeing eye to eye because we had the same type of ways. But to this day, I love it like crazy. You know what I'm saying? Like we had to go through that in order to grow as strong as we are today. And I appreciate her for that, you know, so because it's like... I was a mess. What inspired you to become a fashion designer? Well, when I was young, I ain't have it to be buying the Jabos of the days and the Fubus and all that different stuff in my time. My uncle was the only reason that we experienced having that stuff on. And for some reason, I felt good about it because it's like the lack of having it made me feel good about having it. And when I got in high school, I was like taking clothes and got the paint, white paint, the old paint in the basement. I'm just putting it across the pants. And so you was Dapper Dan before you even knew who Dapper Dan was. Man, I ain't know who Dap or Dan or if he Dap together, you know. <laughs> so I just knew that I wanted to sell these clothes. I actually wanted to wear them. And then I had an auntie that was working at Gucci and I used to take the patches. I used to take the blue jean Walgreens patches, sew the Gucci patches, cut them in squares. It wasn't perfect. And I just put them on top of the pants, iron them on, and then put the paint over with the spray paint for the hair, the whatever color Justin did, some stuff like that. And I actually was selling good when I was doing it. And then it, I was like, man, I'm going to call these Eclipse A jeans. So basically you said it started at a young age, you know, the passion. Like 14. So what made you wanted to um, pick it back up? Because I'm always dressing and putting that stuff on, man. At one point I was buying all that Louis and Gucci and all that. I thought I was making a statement and stuff as well. But man, I did put it together, but it was like more like knowing the insides now. Shout out to Worm. He kind of like molded me to understand that it don't cost much to look good. So he kind of taught you that the man makes the clothes, not the clothes. For sure. Man. And you know what I'm saying? Me and my homie Baze, you know what I'm saying? We used to always put that stuff on and be like, yeah, this is where we at. So now with me designing the clothes, now I go to either one of them and be like, man, bro, what y'all think of this? These mesh shorts. And, you know, this was something that I had to learn is like the quality because the quality was what's most important to me. And like with my shirt, you know, it's summertime. So, you know, it's a 220 GSM, which is, you know, grand square measurements. You know, you got to learn all these different things because quality come from education. Quality come from knowledge. Like, I can't give you quality and don't know what quality is. So I went to school for it and, like, learned and then read a lot of books. I'm on YouTube, Hollywood Shack, Tez, different guys that was giving the game for free, World Envision, Justin Phillips, you know, with Black College. Those guys giving the game for free. And that was D Star talking with the owner of Holy God's Clothing, Kingston Robertson. You can listen to their conversation in full on the Out of the Box podcast, found wherever you get your podcasts. In today's session of The House Always Wins, Allie and John will talk about home wiring basics and how to replace that sad light fixture you've always hated. Hello, everyone. I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, where you can learn cool stuff about your house. We all love cool stuff. Hey, Allie. 
Uh, you and I have had some inquiries about basic electrical things in a house. Some things that have been asked is, can I replace my own light fixture or outlet? Or can I rewire my entire house? Okay, maybe not the last one. But people have asked and are often surprised when I'll say, well, yes, you can replace a fixture in your house in most cases. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've replaced more than a few in my time. And it's not super complicated as long as you follow some common sense rules as you go, like turning off the circuit you're about to work on. Oh, that's always a great idea. Otherwise, the results can be shocking Ugh. or you get all amped up Ugh. or lit or many other bad electrical jokes I can't think of right now. Oh, I think you can think of all of them. Your jokes aren't current and you Ooh. need to find another outlet for your humor. Oh, well played. Okay, nicely done. All right. Well, anyway, maybe we should start this convo with giving a brief intro to electrical theory before leaping into a fixture replacement. What do you think? Yeah, well, I'll do my best, though I'll admit that electricity and magnetism class in college about broke me down. Mm. Uh, but let's just start simply. Electricity is the flow of electrons through a conductor, such as a copper wire. Similarly to how we distribute water to various parts of our house through pipes, we distribute electrons and their energy mm. through wiring that runs throughout our homes. All of the electrical energy we use comes into our house, perhaps through an overhead wire from the power line or from an underground line. So once it's in our homes, the electricity is distributed throughout the house via circuits. Uh, one circuit might power all the lights on the first floor, for example. One might power the outlets in your kitchen, that sort of thing. It also means that we can shut off one circuit and still have electricity in the house, which is really Quite handy. Oh, yeah. If someone's working on their dissertation in another room and you shut off the whole house, that's not going to go well. That's no. for sure. One other thing about those circuits, though, is that they are closed loops or a circuit. Electricity starts flowing from your circuit breaker panel. It goes through to the light fixture you're about to replace. And if the switch is on, then the circuit is closed and you have light. But the electricity isn't done flowing yet. It goes out of the light and then flows all the way back to the panel, closing the loop. When you open the circuit by turning off the switch, you are creating a break in the conductor. The electricity is like a car right there on the shore of the river. But the drawbridge, the switch, is up so it can't get across. Our electricity car is supposed to stay on the road, but we all know that sometimes <laughs> drivers take alternate routes. Oh, yes. And this is where electricity can be dangerous. Any material that electricity can easily travel through is called a conductor. And humans, with all of our water and the salts in us, mm. we are excellent electrical conductors. Oh, yeah, for sure. So if we touch a live wire or anything that's carrying electrical current, our body can provide a pathway for that electricity, causing severe injury or, unfortunately, even death. Indeed. And electrocution is one of the leading causes of construction job site deaths, so it's not to be treated lightly, and that is not a joke. And it doesn't take much electricity at all to kill you or maim you. You're right. So given that, those of us who are not electricians should limit ourselves to replacing existing light fixtures, switches, or outlets. If you want to add a new fixture or outlet, or if you have a circuit that isn't working, or really any electrical mystery, call, call an electrician. Yeah. And <laughs> anything to do with the electrical panel other than opening the door, flipping a circuit breaker, that's right out for the homeowner. Just keep your fingers out of that electrical panel. Uh, finally, uh, another quick cautionary note, if you want to change a ceiling light to a ceiling fan, that might seem like a good one, um, but you ought to call an electrician on that one. Fans weigh a lot more than lights and they move. 
So you need an electrical box that can support that fan. Okay, now that we have the basics and the cautionary tales out of the way, let's talk uh, fixture replacement. So first step, believe it or not, open the box of the fixture you bought and make sure nothing is broken and that you have the right type of bulbs to go with it. Then read over the instructions and make sure any hardware parts that they reference are in there. And you can see it all goes together. You definitely want to do this first because you don't want to like disconnect everything, turn off breakers and circuits and find out, oh, there's parts missing. That's right. Um, so then once you're ready to begin, shut off the circuit. So you need to shut down the entire circuit. And that doesn't mean just shutting off the switch. Sometimes turning off the switch won't be enough as the electricity will be routed through the fixture first and then onto the switch. Thus, you could come into contact with a live wire even though the switch is off. A lot of people don't realize that. To turn off the circuit, you start by turning on the fixture and have someone then watch it for you. Then you're going to go down to the electrical panel. It's usually in the basement. Mm -hmm. Open the door and look for a label on its inside telling you which circuit breakers control which circuits. They're numbered and hopefully labeled. Now, if you're at my house, these labels, such as they are, will mean nothing. <laughs> so you will end up doing this the old-fashioned way, trial and error. Uh, so now you have the circuit off and you can get to work. So start by removing the old fixture. First, you're going to remove any glass parts you can, including the bulbs. Then you're going to work on pulling down the fixture itself. And there are often screws or nuts that hold most fixtures to the wall or the ceiling. Sometimes you might have to find a set screw in the base of the fixture. So remove these and the fixture should start coming loose. You'll gently pull it down, maybe have a helper hold on to it while you disconnect the wiring next. There should be two or maybe three wires. Um, so you're going to pull apart the wire nuts. Those are those colored little plastic caps on the connections. And you pull those apart by turning them counterclockwise. And that should free up those connection points. Uh, once the wires have been disconnected, the fixture should be free. If there's any other bits and bobs of hardware that held the fixture to the electrical box, uh, you want to take that off as well. And when you're done, uh, there should be, hopefully, you'll see a wire that's black, one that's white, and maybe uh, either a bare wire or a green wire in the open electrical box. Right. So now you basically just do the reverse of everything you just did in putting up your new fixture. You start by adding whatever hardware is needed to the electrical box that will hold the fixture. Then have a helper hold up the fixture while you connect the wires from the fixture to the house wiring. Black to black, white to white, ground or bare wire to the ground or bare wire. I mean, sometimes that ground wire might be a green wire instead of a bare wire on the fixture. But in the house, if you have a ground wire, it's almost always a bare copper wire. You shove both of the fixture wire that is stripped into the wire nut along with the house wire that is stripped as well. You then twist the wire nut clockwise until it firmly holds both wires together. Give it a tug after, and if something comes popping loose, try it again. All right, so now it's wired. Then you're going to mount the fixture to whatever bracket or other hardware you already mounted to the box. Snug everything up and step back and make sure it's level and square and looks right. And you might have to take it down again to adjust the hardware to make it sit correctly. But once you have it in place, add the light bulbs and then go and turn the circuit back on. Check. That's it. Awesome new fixture. You changed it. And that's it for us, too, as we're out of time. 
If you have any questions about your home or carpentry, send us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. Until next time, thank you. It's 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Amara Hark Weber is an extraordinarily talented shoemaker, but that wasn't her intention. A horrific car accident changed her path. And thankfully, with hard work and a little bit of forgetfulness, she ended up in a beautiful place. She sat down with Jennifer Fields for this week's Radio Chipstone. I've taken a very circuitous route to get to where I am now, and it makes perfect sense for me. No matter where I was going, I was looking at the human body and thinking about what, how we present ourselves and how we're perceived and how we want to be perceived and how there's just this huge disparity between what, how people see us and how people, we want people to see us frequently. And like my, my undergraduate in African studies was really looking at uh, how cloth and cotton traveled through the triangle between the New World, West Africa, and Europe and like over four, over the 400 years. And so again, it's about how we perceive culture and how we make culture and how we make culture using objects, you know, and our bodies. And so it, it all is kind of like roundabout, like circling around this thing about human bodies and, and movement, both physically and also in like larger ways. So I went to the Art Institute for three years and just before my third year, I was in like a big car accident and I couldn't do the work I was doing before, and I had registered, I had to withdraw solely from all my classes. I realized I couldn't read, I couldn't do all this stuff. And I had signed up for a shoemaking class, and I was able to do that class. And so because I was having verbal communication issues, and I was able to make shoes, I did my thesis project. I totally changed what I was doing, and I did it on, I built a collection of footwear that changes the way your body moves, and so it forces the wearer into positions of vulnerability and also into recovery. And so it was a way of like kind of visually talking about my experience of injury and recovery um, without using words because I didn't really have that much language. So you were still storytelling. You just found different objects and different methods of, of which to tell these stories. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, wow. Well, everything is story based. I mean, I mean, it's true, but I mean, everything is story-based, but it's one thing to recognize that story, Mm -hmm. and and it's another thing to be able to tell it to someone else in the way that they understand it. And I just still, you know, I have a great love for shoes. I love shoes. Sure. Too much. So watch me when (laughs) I leave this room. Watch me, because I don't know. (laughs) Then again, I need this job. I better not be stealing. Anyway, (laughs) did you find that... In telling these stories and telling your story by manipulating the way that people moved in your shoes mm. or manipulating the shoe to change how people moved, were there nuances of your story that you found in that retelling that you didn't yeah. you weren't aware of before? Yeah, completely. And it was really interesting. Like for me, I was telling this I was trying to tell the story, I should say, without using language. And because of that, I wasn't able to control what the re- what the viewer was seeing, and so people who had been through um, physical trauma would see the work. I, I saw. I mean, I would like stand back in the gallery and kind of watch people because I was so curious as to what people would see when they saw it. It was so, like, it was so uh, emotional for me to make this stuff, 
And I had no idea what the reaction was going to be because I had never seen anything like it at all. They're really weird. Um, and people would, some people would cry when they saw it. Other people would be like, oh my God, it's so funny. And other people would be like, oh, I'd wear that. Oh, that's cute. And so I, that was one of the things that I was really appreciated was that you don't know what people are bringing to the table. And so to be able to be open to that and say like, like, with something like footwear or something with like any object of apparel, we can, we, we can put ourselves in those positions and we can imagine what it feels like because we've all had those experiences. And so by altering your, and also too, like by altering your relationship with the earth, you're really manipulating people's equilibrium. I mean, like it affects people in very kind of, in, in all different ways. Amara, it reminds me of those experience with experiments where they would take students and then block off a sensory sure, sure, put. Sure. So like maybe they put glasses on you so you couldn't see yep. or some hearing blocks that you couldn't hear. Mm -hmm. And just hearing people talk about their relationship to having that, that sense nulled. Yeah. What was the feedback from the people who were performing who were wearing your shoes? Oh, I wore them. Yeah, I wore them. Yeah, so it was, it was I who was doing it because I wouldn't, well, for a couple reasons. The most basic was logistical, like they were very uncomfortable and kind of scary. And so I wouldn't want to put somebody else into that physical position. And also too, like one of them were like 18 inches tall. Like if you fall down in that, that's like a long way down. That's a, yeah, that's a big way. I yeah. used to wear big shoes. That's a big fall. Yeah, it's a big fall. It's, um, and so I just like, yeah, so I, I, they were, they were in my size-ish. I didn't really know about sizing and and I and I did it. Yeah, it was. And so it was like the that the final piece was like the the seven pairs of shoes and then a video that I did of like using them. And um, and then that was it. So was this your first year of making shoes that you came up with yep. this project? Yeah, it was like my it was my it was my I made one pair of shoes and then like I would just launched into this project. But I had had a background as a maker. So I had done bookbinding, which is really, really similar. Um, I knew a little bit about apparel construction, but for whatever reason, it just was something that I could do. And I don't know why that is. <laughs> but it's interesting to me, Amara, because it's like there was no way to predict the accident. So it kind of makes sense that that project could just sort of come out of you in that yeah. unexpected way. Yeah, you just never know. I mean, like, people are so amazing. And we have depths that we have no idea what they are. And sometimes you just tap into something and who knows where it comes from, but it's there and everybody has those things that they just find it's the right thing at the right time or it's the right thing at the wrong time or the wrong thing at the right time. But we all have that kind of, we all have unexpected elements, you know. So were you able to, were you able to make peace? I don't want to say make peace because that just sounds so so much like I'm putting a bow on it, was working through that process with the shoes and that performance, were you able to work out issues you had with your physicality? With, yeah. were, were you able to get to some places by actually doing that? that or, did, yeah. or did actually doing that take you to a different place other than you expected? You know, that's a good question. I don't know totally how to answer that. I have like a bad head injury. And like people with head injuries just do weird stuff. Like there's just no two ways about it. Like you can ask my family, I was not easy to be around or so I hear. Like, I, I don't know, I, 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 don't, I don't know how to answer that really. Um, it was something that I was compelled to do and that I needed to do. Um, I was determined to get done with my program. 
I was, for whatever reason, determined to do it through footwear. And when I finished, um, I got a small fellowship, like an award based on my thesis work. And it was just enough money to go and study with a boot maker. And so I just took it and I was like, well, the world has plenty of graphic designers and I can't really see out of one of my eyes very well. So I'm gonna go and learn from this boot maker and I'll give it a year and see how it goes. And if I can, you know, I'll see, like, let's see, let's see what happens, kind of. And so that's, that's how I started. And in no way was I ready to, like, do this as my job or, you know, like, there was, but I made almost, I made so little money that it, it didn't really matter, you know, it's like, <laughs> is that really a job? I don't know. <laughs> but, but it was really, um, like, I, I think back on it sometimes and, like, I don't think that I could do that again because it was hard and I had to... I, it was just, um, you know, it's it's hard starting a business. It's hard starting a new craft. And making shoes, if you ask anybody who's made them, is a hard thing. And it's unexpected, you know. And, you know, and I would wonder, too, or I would ask, is part of that you could go through that hardness because you said it was all you could do? Yeah. So I what just, else did yeah. you, like, what else were you going to do? I have no idea what else I would have done. And also, too, my memory was really bad. So, like, every day I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm... I can't do that. And then the next morning you wake up and you're like, I think I'm going to do this again. And so, you know, having a really bad memory in a, in, when you're in a tough situation is a blessing because you just, you know, you, you still have the same determination and grit and you can't remember how hard it was yesterday. <laughs> For WORT, I'm Jennifer Field. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporters tonight were Faye Parks and Elizabeth Walsh. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, Carousel Baird, John Stephanie and Ali Barini, and Jennifer Fields. Ashley Roberts engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Miss Sally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for listening. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.